When I was uh, new to the faith in my early 20s, Carol and I were involved in a church renewal movement within a denomination that was liberal. And um, very new in the faith, probably six months, 12 months new. And we had met with many different uh, couples that were working in this effort to revitalize the faith of many people. And, and uh, we came across a couple that we enjoyed very much and um, were older than we were, longer in the faith, and we had a degree of respect for them. Uh, after a number of years, we found out that uh, the man had actually been, um, he was guilty of embezzling. Uh, he was a church secretary or a church financial secretary of embezzling and in being in various relationships outside of his marriage. And I remember as a young Christian, uh, both feeling sorry, just sad over the situation. And I also felt a degree of, uh, um, not anger, but kind of frustration over, you know, there was this image being brought forth of a spirituality, yet it wasn't consistent with reality. And, and I, I remember struggling with that at, at a young spiritual age. And then, of course, now all these years in ministry, I, I realize that this is probably the singular most frequent objection to coming to church, is the church is filled with these hypocrites. They put forth this image, and yet their lives are over here. And um, Jesus makes no, he doesn't leave uncertain his position regarding hypocrisy. And uh, he has some very, very strong language for it. We're going to see in chapter 6, borderline hates hypocrisy. Now, if you remember back in the beginning, we had uh, at the end of chapter 5, Jesus is contrasting the superficial righteousness of the Pharisees with the deeper inner righteousness of the Christian, right? So the, the righteousness of the Pharisees is don't commit murder. Okay, I didn't do that, so I'm in okay shape. But Jesus says, no, don't be angry. Well, that's a different issue. You know, the Pharisees said, well, don't, um, don't commit adultery. Okay, I didn't do that, so I must be okay. But then, but then Jesus deepens it and says, well, if you lust after another woman in your heart, then you've committed adultery. Well, that's a different issue altogether. Jesus drives a much deeper inner moral righteousness, the demands for the Christian. In chapter 6, he's going to look at the practice of this righteousness. The the practice of this righteousness of the Pharisees was ostentatious. It was outward. It was much religious activity. Whereas for the Christian, there is to be an authenticity to our godliness. There there is to be an integrity. Because Jesus knows that even those of us who want to pursue godliness, that it it can quickly get twisted into being self-promoting and self-glorious, really denying an authentic faith. Jesus is going to go after the motivations that underlie the action. So if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, what you're going to see is this, this, um, we're going to read the first six verses, and then 7 to 15 is really about the Lord's Prayer. We'll take that next week. Then we're going to jump to 16 to 18, and you'll see the consistency in language and why I'm breaking it up this way. So Matthew 6, 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. 
and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But you, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jumping to 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here's the layout of the passage. In verse 1, I'm just going to explain a principle to you regarding how we exercise our religious devotions. And then Jesus gives three examples, and you see them in the blocks that I read, 2 to 4, 5, and 6, and then 16 to 18. This is, he's going to give us three examples, but let me first explain the principle to you. So let's look back at verse 1. Briefly, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So Jesus is really asking us here to check our motivations, to check our motivations, uh, that the motivation of your act is as important as the act. Notice the language he uses. He says, beware, take heed, pay attention. Kind of like a, a snake coiled under some leaves. Really be careful here that you're mindful to know why you're doing what you're doing. Uh, that you're not looking, that whether <clears throat> whatever act of devotion you're walking in, that you're not doing it to be seen by others. That word to be seen, at least the Greek word, is our word for theater. In other words, don't do your religion as if you were on stage. You're acting in a religious manner as if unto God, but you're really doing it with a glance of other people. You know, are they seeing you? Do they notice you? This is really the essence of hypocrisy, putting forth an image here of spirituality, but really looking to draw the attention of men and women. Now, Jesus isn't condemning here our acts done in public. He's condemning our acts done for public consumption to be seen by men. Alexander McLaren, a British preacher in the uh, 19th century, said, it's not the spectators, excuse me, it's not the number of spectators, but the glance of our eyes to see if they're looking at us that makes the sin. So, so the idea is when you and I are praying, fasting, giving, whatever we're doing, serving, speaking about God, pray, however we're walking out the Christian faith, when you do it for the audience of people, That's the essence of hypocrisy. And here's the warning. You will get nothing from God. God will give no reward for that. God will not look on that approvingly. In other words, it's not exactly what you do, it's why you do it. Foundational to the right, authentic expression of faith is doing it for the glory of God. Now, Ask yourselves, I mean, how much do I do? How much do I promote in me and about me so that others may approve of me or honor me? This is a real issue for us. 
you know, we want to put forth this image that my marriage is perfect. We all walk in here as if our marriages are all neat and tidy, if our lives are all organized, if we are the most polished, well-heeled people. We come in, we love the approval of men. You see it, at least for some, and I've referenced it before on Facebooks or Facebook or other social mediums, where we're hoping to promote an image. I've seen sometimes, I'm like, I mean, they're living the high life. I know that's not their real life. And, and so it's kind of promoting an image that is not true to reality. Or the way we doctor resumes. I mean, how often have you heard about a resume being discovered to not be true and the person losing the job? Remember even the, the head coach at Notre Dame. I mean, that's one of the biggest positions in college football. And he doctored his resume. They found it and he lost his job. I mean, how often do we want to promote the, the receiving of titles or the trying to receive acknowledgement of what we've done? I mean, this is fundamental to who we are, people. If we cannot embrace the reality that we love the applause of men, then the sermon's going to be wasted on you. Authentic faith asks, why am I doing what I'm doing? I mean, why am I giving what I give? Why am I serving in the way I serve? Why am I praying in the way that I pray? I mean, you have to consider the motives of your heart. You have to do the hard work of taking your soul to task. I remember when Carol and I were going to go overseas, uh, we really didn't know what to do. We had two small children under two and a half years of age, had a CPA firm, busy in life, involved in ministry. We thought, you know, we are being used of God. God, are you calling us to go overseas? It was, people thought we had lost our minds. And so people weren't really giving us any sound advice. They were just looking at us and scratching their heads. And we were going to throw everything away and just go overseas. And I remember one guy, a pastor friend of my brother, he asked this simple question. I know it seems ignorant to me now that I didn't think about it, but I didn't think about it. He just says, why do you want to go? And I was stunned by two things, the simplicity of the question and then my ignorance of not asking it to myself. Now, when I began to process, why am I going, I started thinking, well, no one else is going to go. Well, that's just self-righteousness. Well, there's people out there that are going to die without the name of Christ. Well, that's just arrogance on my part, like the plan of salvation has been moved from Christ to me. And so as I began to process through these motivations, I realized what was underneath there was really not good at all. And it helped me to sort through things. So why do you do what you do? That's what Jesus is asking. Beware of how you practice your righteousness in front of men in order to be seen by them. That's a principle that is just fundamental to who we are and how the Christian lives lives. Well, Jesus gives us three examples, and you see it here, 2 through 6 and then 16 18. I just want to look at each one briefly regarding giving, praying, and fasting. And I, I'm going to ask you to engage yourself with me because most of you, at least at one point or two, you give and you pray and maybe you fast or perhaps you deny yourself of something. And so I want you to, to take your practice of this righteousness and hold it in light of what Jesus is teaching us here. Okay, so let's look at the first one, giving. These are the three pillars of Jewish piety. Really, they're the pillars of the piety of many of the world's religions. You know, giving and praying and fasting are fundamental to all religions. But particularly this, 
giving uh, was commanded by God both in the Old and New Testament. Jesus expects his people to give, right? He says when you give. He doesn't say if you give, if you, if you have the ability to give or if you think it's good to give. He just says when you give. So, so the expectation is we're going to give. Well, the Pharisees, of course, had turned this giving into really an art form regarding displaying their own generosity. Look at what Jesus says about them. He says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, what he means by this is, we don't know exactly what Jesus is saying. He may be speaking metaphorically. You know, you kind of toot your own horn, if you will, when you give. Maybe he's speaking about that way. Some scholarship kind of comes down on the fact that, no, this is a literal deal. What they would do in Jerusalem is they would blow a trumpet when there was a large gift to be given. And the trumpet would be the sound to bring the poor of Jerusalem forward. And then they would come to the temple area, and then the man or the woman or the benefactor who's giving the gift would be there, and they would distribute the gift to these people. And it was a great opportunity to display publicly your generosity. And Jesus is saying, don't blow a trumpet. Don't do it. What he says here, he says, but, the contrast. But anytime you see but, it's a... But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. So Jesus is giving us a remedy to a situation. He's saying when you give, don't, your left, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, I think he's speaking here, of course, on a general level, that he's saying don't publicize what you give, or, or really even when you give. Don't publicize it. But I think there's something more that... that that can dog us a little more effectively. You know, to say that my left hand can't know what my right hand is doing is an interesting expression because they really work in unison, right? If I'm picking up a box, they both have to apply pressure to lift the box. If I'm cutting a board, for example, and I pull down the saw, if my left hand doesn't know what my right hand is doing, uh, then I'm going to have a real problem. I mean, I'm going to lose a hand. And so they work in harmony all the time. So when Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, I wonder if he's saying to grow in a forgetfulness of what you're doing. I I wonder if he's saying that we need to be somewhat self-unaware of what we're giving. I think what he's driving at is don't contemplate what a generous giver you are. You may be a generous giver. But you're not to be thinking about it and dwelling on it and marveling over, wow, I really did give a lot this month, or I really did give a lot this year. I mean, there's the sense of, of, of decreasing in your own self-awareness over the generosity that God has given you the gift to exercise. Now, so when you ask yourself, do you give? Do you give in secret? Do you give in a way that God being in secret sees you? In other words, you know, we can be subtle about this. I know that I've been guilty of this. You can get across if you want the degree of generosity. You can say things like, I'm really going to put a lot behind that ministry. I really believe in this thing. You know what? We really are supporting this, this, you know, agency that's helping to feed the poor. We're really behind it, and we're going to put a lot of weight behind this thing. We we can be subtle about describing various ways to make sure that someone knows we're generous towards this. Now, the sad thing is the church actually has given up on some subtlety, and we're just now pretty much blazing about often about how we give. Even when you look at some year-end reports, 
of certain charitable organizations, they'll have the gold list and the silver list and the bronze list, depending upon how much you give. That we put names on buildings, we put plaques on walls. When we raised funds for this place, we didn't do that. We didn't want to put a tag on anything that's here regarding a name. It definitely helps in fundraising, I will tell you that, because we like it when our name's somewhere. But, but it's, again, not doing it in secret. You have to ask yourselves, why do you give? Do you give in secret? Do you give in a way that God alone would know? Well, look, he, he also speaks to prayer in, in verse 5. You know, praying, if you remember, is simply a delight to commune with God. God has given us an ability through the Son to access and enjoy him in prayer, that you get to speak with God. You can't even speak with your state representative without an appointment, and yet you can go before the one who created all things, and he invites you into his presence through the name of Christ. And so prayer is a glorious thing. The Pharisees had turned it into really a display of their spirituality. Notice what he says in verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now remember, in this time, generally people pray, at least the pious people prayed three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. And there was always a set time that you would begin prayer. And so you, wherever you are, you were to stop, turn towards the temple, and perhaps some would raise their hands and begin to pray. Now, um, the Pharisees would often make sure that they happened to be in public places at that time so that they could be seen to be praying and recognized as such spiritual giants. It was really hypocrisy, right? They were using prayer, which is a means of seeking God, and they're using prayer now as a means of seeking popularity regarding their spirituality. And they're looking to pray eloquent, bold, flowery prayers so that people would see them and say, wow, they really know God. Wish I could pray like Bill, as if that matters to God. And Jesus, of course, condemns that. He says, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, Jesus isn't condemning public prayer. David just prayed publicly. He prayed for us. And we're going to talk about that next week, why he's doing that. He prayed publicly. After the service, we're going to pray. We want you to pray. I don't want to say, nobody's going to pray after this sermon. Everybody's going to be scared. It's going to be real short prayers. God help me. God have mercy. I don't want, that's not the point. He's not condemning public prayer. In the book of Acts, you see the church constantly gathering and praying together. I think what he's doing here is he's raising up the primacy of secret prayer, of where you're going into a room, shutting the door. And the word for room, by the way, was often used for storehouses, where the treasures were kept, where the goods were kept. In other words, come with God in his room and speak with him. When you pray in secret, eloquence isn't an issue. Raising your hands or not raising your hands isn't an issue. There, isn't, there aren't distractions regarding prayer. You can let it all hang out. You can stumble and fumble through your prayer. God loves to hear his children. And in secret, you don't have any of the distractions. The secret prayer purifies our motives. Because you know what? If you don't really want to pray, you won't do it in secret. So ask yourself, do you pray? And, and do you love to pray in secret less than you love to pray in public? Are your prayers 
in public more fervent than they are in secret. I mean, ask yourselves, do a little bit of that heart work where you're beginning to consider, how am I praying? Am I more fervent when there's a bigger audience around me? And what would that indicate about the nature of your praying? Have you ever prayed and you began marveling over how good you sound? I mean, Jesus is trying to get to the issue of, of when you pray, go into your secret room. Just appeal to God. Okay, the third issue he brings up here is fasting. He says in verse 16, And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I said to you, they have received their reward. Now, now listen, fasting is simply this. It's the total or the partial abstaining from food or something else for spiritual purposes. That's the idea. Fasting was required one time in the Old Testament per year, the Day of Atonement. Fasting was a time where, where the people would humble themselves, they recognized their sin, and so they're appealing to God for mercy. Fasting has other purposes. It, it develops self-discipline within us, that we can pull away from the lust and the draws of the world. Fasting is a sign of humility. It's a recognition how creaturely we are as our stomach growls, showing us how strong our stomachs can move us. And it's breaking down that, that creaturely demand, opening our eyes to the greatness of God. Fasting is a good thing. What the Pharisees did was they would dollop their faces with some dust to kind of show their faces to be gaunt so that when people would see them, they would see their gaunt faces. That's what he means by disfigure. He doesn't mean to cut it up. He just means to cause it to look gloomy and sad as if they were languishing under the weight of God. So the people would see them and say, wow, look at them. Look at all that they're giving up for God. What spiritual beings they must be. And Jesus says, no, 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 when you fast, that's a critical point right there. When you fast, not should you fast or if you fast, it's when you fast. When you fast, then anoint your head, wash your hair, brush your teeth, comb your hair, dress up so that people don't know that you are disciplining your body for purposes of a spiritual import. In other words, don't bring attention to yourself when you fast. So the question you, this audience today, has to ask is, do I fast? And, and when I fast, even if you don't fast for food, let's say you give up something else for some spiritual purpose. Do you let that be known? Sometimes I was, and Carol chided me on this once, I, I could be uh, verbal about, particularly with our kids perhaps, when we were giving up something for them. I, I made it known to them. Now, I know that there's a place to help kids understand uh, what they have is unique and a blessing, but, but, but there was almost a self-promotion in my soul. I mean, ask yourself, I mean, do you tend to do that? Do you tend to work it into the fabric of a conversation of what you've given up for something? You know, you're just drawing that attention to yourself. So what Jesus is saying here is he's not saying don't give, pray, or fast. He's saying when you give, when you pray, when you fast. He's trying to get at the motivations. Why are you praying and fasting and giving? He's really showing us two kinds of spirituality, isn't he? One is more vein-centered, more self-seeking, more rewards today. The other type of giving and fasting and praying is more God-centered. It's more secretive. It's more for God's honor. So where do you land on this? This is a difficult word. 
Chapter 6 is going to be a hard word for us. Let me, let me just read for you what Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the great preacher in London in the mid-20th century, even during the bombing of London, he would preach each week, he'd stay after church to meet with people, even though many at the time were fleeing the city, he remained faithful to the flock that he was shepherding. Here's what he wrote about, about chapter 6 in Matthew that we're reading. He says, we may as well realize that at the outset that this chapter is again a very searching one. Indeed, we can go further and say it's a very painful one. I sometimes think that it's one of the most uncomfortable chapters to read in the entire scriptures. It probes and examines and holds a mirror up before us and it will not let us escape. There is no chapter which is more calculated to promote self-humbling and humiliation than this particular one. But thank God for it. The Christian should always be anxious to know himself. No other man truly wants to know himself. The natural man thinks he knows himself and thereby reveals his basic trouble. His, he evades self-examination because to know oneself is ultimately the most painful piece of knowledge that a man can ever acquire. And here is a chapter that brings us face to face with ourselves and enables us to see ourselves exactly as we are. But I repeat, thank God for it. This is a good thing. This searching chapter is a good thing to know where you really are. When you give, do you blast a trumpet? When you pray, do you do it to be seen and heard? When you fast or when you give up, do you want to make that a public piece of knowledge so that people think better of you? Are you terrified to do it? So take the inverse now. Are you terrified to do anything because people might not think well of you? You know, you take that dictum in Proverbs, if I don't say much, people might think I'm intelligent. It's the same thing, it's just reversed. There's a danger if we don't deal with this. People of God, if we don't deal with this, there's a real danger. And let me just explain to you, there is self-deception if we don't deal with this. There's, you can be a born-again believer, you have a new heart, you have new desires. The temptation for the lust of man's approval is great. I mean, the desire to still be well thought of is profound. It's, it's large. And in, in, in fact, the tense of the command to beware is in the present tense. That means it's going to be with us until we stop breathing. So this is a battle we have to wage. There's self-deception. This idea that we can feel comfortable in the shell of spirituality but have no inner zeal. You know, we want to have all the marks of the Christian life, but there's no affections for God. That is a warning signal for us. We're deceived into thinking we're better, we're further along. Here's my fear. I don't want to be the Pharisee in Luke 15. The Pharisee walks into the temple, the tax collector comes after him. You know the two, the Pharisee, he knows the word, he knows the law, he does it, he's out there. On, on Friday morning, adding up all the mint and tithing his mint. Tax collector's an, extor he's an extortionist. He's a thief. And, and, and so they both go in the temple, and the Pharisee says, thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. I give a tenth of all I get. I'm faithful. I know the word. He's totally deceived. When Jesus looks at both of them, what does he say? He says, the tax collector went home justified, made right with God. The Pharisee, the godly man, the righteous man, the religious man, the man that we'd all think, wow, that guy really knows he's up there on a higher rung than we are. 
he goes home not justified. It, it's a fearful thing to be, to be a church angel and a house devil, to be one way at the church and one way at the office. I mean, it's a fearful thing. You can deceive yourselves. You end up standing before the throne, and it gets revealed. That's not when you want to learn this stuff. We're going to take our souls to task right now. Not just that. It's a distorting thing. It's not just deceiving. It's distorting. It, confusion begins to arise within the person. Who am I? Am I this one or this one? You begin to think I'm living two lives. If you're wise, I mean, this is the whole point. Do you just see how many times Jesus calls them hypocrites? Do you know what the word hypocrite means? Hypocrite actually in Greek meant orator, a speaker. It came to mean an actor. So in the Greek theater, they didn't have makeup to dress up a character to play a part. They would have a mask. And they would put a mask on and they would play a part. And the, the same actor may play two parts. He'd have two masks. And so he'd put a mask on to be this person. He'd put a mask on to be this person. And what Jesus is saying is beware that we're not wearing masks. We're displaying a spirituality here that isn't here. It's distorting. It causes a fracturing of our person. We don't know who we really are. Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote, No man can for any considerable time wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which is the true one. So we want to root out the hypocrisy. It, it's deceiving, it's distorting, and ultimately it's going to be disappointing to you. Because here's why. If you walk in this hypocrisy over which Jesus warns us, you will get rewarded. People will think you're spiritual. People will be impressed with you. They will give you accolades. They will speak to you about how good you are, what a great teacher you are, or, or how, how sacrificial you are. Jesus says three times they've had their reward in full. Now listen, that's a commercial term. It's used on documents. When things are paid in full, you can't expect anything else. It's stamped on the, on the receipt. That's what Jesus is saying. You get it all. You're finished. You're done. Finito. There's nothing else. This is what Charles Spurgeon says. Your success is your failure because you've got nothing. You've had the accolades of fickle men and women. And at the end, it's nothing. It's like water on the desert. Evaporates before your eyes. You need the next batch tomorrow. That evaporates. You need the next batch. That evaporates. And then at the end, you've got nothing. It's, it's a serious issue. So, so let me give you a couple thoughts to consider how we move out of this hypocrisy, out of this threat. It's a threat to every one of us. It's a threat to me, the fear of man, wanting to be seen well by you. I know it's a threat to you. So, so here are four things I want you to consider. Uh, the first one is this. To begin practicing your righteousness in secret in other words, to attempt when you pray, when you give, when you fast, to be more secretive about it. You know, six times in this passage, uh, Jesus speaks about God being in secret and you doing it secretly. Now listen, I don't think God's in secret like he's in a closet somewhere hidden from us. I think he's speaking about the invisibility of God, that God is invisible to you. A and so when, you are, when, when he says do it in secret, He's saying do it as if God is your only audience. To, to, to pray, reminding yourself, God, I, I want to speak to you today. When you give and, and you write your check, that you say, God, this is for you. 
And, and, and when you fast, God, this is to humble myself before you that I may know you better and love you more. So to do things in secret is really to try to do things as unto God, as an audience of one. That's critical, to do it in secret. Why? Because God sees you in secret. Interesting, God's not looking in the public. He's looking in secret. He sees everything you do. Your hearts are exposed to him. You know, in Samuel, he says he looks upon the heart of men. He looks at why we do what we do. Every act, every word. This is not to be intimidating. This can be very freeing. That's the way David took it in Psalm 139. If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the depths of Sheol, there your right hand holds me fast. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He is the only God that is. So, so do things in secret. Now, sometimes it's difficult. You know, you, everything can't be done in secret. You live in a family. You live in a community. So sometimes things are seen. But that's when you refocus on God as your audience of one. And sometimes it's difficult to discern. One scholar said, if you're tempted to do it in private, do it in public. And if you're tempted to do it in public, do it in private. You know, the, the idea is that our hearts are often wayward. So if you're tempted to shield something, you probably need to promote it. If you're tempted to promote it, you probably need to shield it. Okay, so do it in secret. And, and, and begin to make that even your practice today. Secondly, um, practice your righteousness before God as your father. I want you to think God is Father. Ten times in this passage, he is Father to us. Now, that's difficult for us to understand because many of us have had poor fathers. And we don't think about God as Father. We think about him as God, Elohim, the mighty God. I don't want to take that away. I want you to know that for the Christian, we see him, God, as Father. Here's why. When you practice your righteousness and you don't see God as a Father and you see him as this distant God, you tend to do things to earn favor from him. Whereas if you see him as father, you tend to do things because he has been favorable to you. That you've been made a son, and so now the works that come out of that are a display of your love for him. That we do things to him as father. The Pharisees never got this. They, these men were, they were artists with doing religion. But the warning that Jesus gave is, their lips honor me, their hearts are far from me. They didn't love God. That's why Jonathan Edwards says that, that the heart of religion is bound up in having true affections for God as your father. As you think about God, people, listen, God has chosen for the believer here, not for the Christian, for the non-Christian, but for the Christian here, God has given you a son to die for your sins, to bear God's wrath, that through faith you could not just be saved from your sins, but adopted into his family. He is your father, and he is to garner the attention. In other words, his approval is to cause the approval of others to seem insignificant. So, so when I was in high school, I played football. And uh, I won't say that I was a star. I mean, you can if you want. Um, team rested on me, of course. But uh, I won't say, I won't be caught saying that up here. Um, but but when, my, when I played football, my dad would often come, not as often as parents do today, like parents won't miss a game today. I don't know, something changed when I was a kid. Maybe he came to 10, 12 games in my high school career. He worked 20 miles away, couldn't come to every game at 3 o'clock. Uh, but when he came, I knew he was there. And just thinking about one of my plays. Um, <laughs> I love my dad, and when he came, I, I wanted him to approve of the way I played. 
Not because I felt like his love was teetering. If I didn't have a good game, he'd yell at me. That wasn't the case with my dad. But, but th the stands could have been filled, but he was the one I was concerned with. He was the one that I wanted to know, do you think it was a good game? He was the one that I would want to discuss the game with. It could have been 1,000 people or 10. didn't matter to me if he was in the stands. That's what I looked at. God, I think, I think we've made God, and we want to lift him up as glorious and mighty, but God is our Father. He loves us. He has a passion for us. So, so if you are practicing your righteousness, apart from thinking God is Father, it's going to move into slavery. It's going to move into obligation. It's going to move into duty. It's not going to be this passionate, God, I, wanna, I want your approval. I want your satisfaction. I want you to be pleased. I want to hear, well done, my good and faithful son. That's what I want. So, so consider how you understand God because it takes our righteousness and moves it into kind of subtly trying to earn his favor or really a response to his love for us. And then third, I would say to you, practice your righteousness with a view of the rewards that are coming to you, that he promises rewards. Three times, you will have your reward. Now listen, uh, this is a difficult concept for us. I think we tend to think of rewards as more mercenary in nature, that we think that if I want a reward, that somehow taints the act that I do. In other words, we think, and it's more stoic philosophy is what it is, it's not Christian theology, but we think that if there's a desire for a reward, that that somehow means the act is less virtuous. And that is not the way the scriptures teach us. You see three times in here to look for the reward. Jesus looked for the word, reward. He says in Hebrews that who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So he endured the cross so as to enjoy the joy that the Father would have. Moses, the same thing in Hebrews eleven twenty six says we considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking for the reward. In other words, he cast aside all the, the gold and the silver and the bronze of Egypt and said, I want what God has. What God has is far better than this paltry little gold and silver stuff that Egypt has. He wanted the reward. We need to be thinking about that. Now, now let me quote, let me read a quote from C.S. Lewis, because for me, this quote helps to separate that confusion we have that seems mercenary. You know, when we want the reward, what does that really say about us? So here's what he writes. He says, we must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes a Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the thing that you do to earn it. And it's quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany these things. I know you don't fully understand that. Here's what he says. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is what we call a man, a mercenary, if he married a woman for the sake of her money. So if he marries a woman for the money, he's not really about the woman. It's a mercenary affair. He says, but marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. So if I love Carol and I love being married to her, then the reward of the marriage doesn't dilute my desire to have the reward of marriage. I just made it as confusing as he did. Okay, a general who fights well in order to get a peerage is mercenary. A peerage is standing among his peers. A general who fights for victory is not, 
For victory is the proper reward of a battle, as marriage is the proper reward of love. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they're given, but are the activity itself in consummation. So it depends what you want. If I want more of God, if I want more of his pleasure and joy and love, then that is not mercenary at all. So think, do you reward? Do you desire the rewards of God? Do you desire to have more of God? Do you want more of him? That is the driving influence for why we do things in secret. And then last, that I would ask you to practice repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are two friends for us, right? They lead us to God. So repentance and faith. I repent of my sins. I recognize my sorrow before God. In love, I move to God with faith. And we move from darkness to light. We move from the kingdom, uh, from being outside the kingdom to being in the kingdom. Repentance and faith is what saves men and women. But once you're saved, repentance and faith are still companions for us. We still travel with repentance and faith. See, most of you, I don't think, are seriously ostentatious. I think most of you are like me. We struggle. There's a mixed motive. I do want to help the poor. I like to be known as those who help the poor. I, I do want to pray to God, but I do want to be known as a spiritual good prayer. You know, I do want to fast and discipline my body but I want to be known as a guy who fasts and disciplines his body. We have these mixed motives in our soul. So what do we do with that? Should we just not do anything? No, I would say that we just confess that. Repent of that sin. God, forgive me for mixed motives. There has been more than one Sunday I have sat there and I've said, God, forgive me for mixed motives. I want your word preached well. I want your people prepared to see Christ. I want them to think I did a a good job. I mean, there's mixed motives. So what do I do? I confess it. And I move forward with it. I confess it and have faith to believe that God's going to use it. And he's going to draw me closer and closer to himself so that the the bandwidth between who Tom really is and what Tom really wants to to display to people, that over time that thing is going to get closer and closer together. There's a lot here, and I I just feel like I just surfed the whole thing. So let's, let's pray for a few minutes. I'm going to begin. Jack's going to close us. But let's ask for grace to be able to confess these things, let's ask for grace to be able to, to have the fortitude to inspect our souls, that we might move towards an authentic faith, that we might identify hypocrisy, seek to eliminate it. And I want to seek to eliminate it by doing things in secret, by considering the fatherhood of God, by considering the rewards that he offers me, and by practicing faith and repentance. Father, you've heard these words Words of a simple man, would you move through your spirit to apply them to the hearts of your people that they would be bettered and on the final day they would be thankful.